Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll talk to the folks from the first ever Runway 5K, turning the runway at the Northampton Airport into a human racetrack, all to raise money for the Treehouse Foundation, who are re-envisioning foster care and community living in a neighborhood in East Hampton. And Greenfield's Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield, talking about a word that describes other words that was coined by the former head of NPR. But joining us now are the hosts of Tumble Science Podcast for Kids, Lindsay Patterson and Marshall Escamilla. Their latest episode is What's That Bird Song, where we meet Trevor Attenberg, an environmental scientist and science communicator who learned to identify birds with sight, not with sight, but by sound alone. Yes, without sight. Without sight. (laughs) Marshall and Lindsay are bringing Tumble Live to downtown Greenfield this Saturday, April 22nd with Meltdown, a day of free family fun at Hawks and Reed and outside on Court Square and the Greenfield Common. Welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. We had a great time with you last time you were on the show, and we uh, here at NEPM aired a bunch of your podcasts back-to-back. That was a fun experience for for us, at least. It was. Yeah. You... I actually got to listen to it on a drive elsewhere. I remembered. I was like, oh, yeah, they're going to teach me about polar bears. <laughs> <laughs> for those That's who... what we do. Oh, for those who aren't familiar with the podcast, tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got into this world of communicating science to kids and their grownups, as we say. Lindsay? Yeah. So I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I am one of the hosts. I'm also the writer of the show. And growing up, I really didn't like science. But when I became a journalist and got to interview a scientist, I discovered that everything I learned or thought I learned about science in school was wrong and that (laughs) science isn't just a set of facts and especially it is a way of gathering evidence and learning about the world and solving problems that we all care about and I wanted to share that with kids who maybe also were mistaken about about science. Yeah, I was one of those kids where I had to like listen to the audiobook version of A Brief History of Time before I realized like, <laughs> wow, I love astronomy. I just really hate math. Yeah, it's like you don't have to do science to be interested in science. Yeah. Yes. What about you, Marshall? Uh, you are you're married into the podcast. Yes, I married into the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lindsay came home one day and was like, "Let's make a science podcast for kids." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> like you do. Yeah, but you provide all the the great music and all the sound engineering yeah. and the sound design of the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I I, I don't engineer it. We have someone oh, who's cool. professional at engineering. I I have done and I. You, you don't want me engineering your stuff. Uh-huh. That's, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Yes, but um, he, he also provides a lot of the humor. A lot of I was just looking at our reviews, and they're like, Marshall's jokes are so funny. I am so funny. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the dynamic we have here. Police is the smart one, and I'm the dumb one that asks dumb, funny questions. And that's kind of the podcast. Funny funny podcast. Podcast. Yeah. It's yeah. more formula. than dumb, funny questions. It's just connections with the world we are trying to make, including the fact that we also like learning about science. So yeah. Yeah. it's yes. really cool, especially like birds are fascinating because they're tiny dinosaurs that we kept around and happened to fly. <laughs> yeah, not all are tiny. Not all of them are tiny. Fair enough. Yeah, and the Have big you ever ones. Seen an ostrich oh. like face to face. Oh yeah, yeah. Back when I did segments for Connecting Point for WGBY Television, which sadly does not exist anymore, I did a segment with emus at an emu farm that also no longer exists in Gill, and they Wait. were biting me live yeah, on camera. Yeah, they're angry birds. Yeah. yeah. 
Angry yeah. Birds. Not the just real the video kind. game. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like there's a lot of angry birds in the bird kingdom. It's not just like emus and sometimes ostriches, but like geese. Like geese are so mad most oh, yeah. of the time. Yeah, and then yeah. sometimes ducks are really mad. Anyhow, birds in general yes. are mad, which makes me think like back in the time of the dinosaurs, was everyone just angry? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're angry about what happened. That's what I was going to <laughs> yeah. say. Generational trauma there. <laughs> That's what yeah. I was going to say. All of our family, something happened. Yeah. Yeah. All of my friends are was dead. It, your it, it took science to tell us what that thing was. And Lindsay and Marshall, the hosts of Tumble, the science podcast for kids, and we're talking so much about birds because the most recent episode is What's That Bird Song, where we meet Trevor Attenberg, who uh, is visually impaired but is a birder and a scientist. Let's hear a little clip from the most recent episode. I became quite interested in how different groupings of birds, like, say, the warblers and the thrushes and the sparrows, they tended to have specific qualities of their sounds that sort of would group them together. Huh, so it's like how, like, pop music is different from rock, which is different from hip-hop, which is different from uh, country, rap, or so on. <laughs> Different from Gregorian chants. Yes. <laughs> Your favorite genre. <laughs> Which bird species does Gregorian chant? <laughs> A lot of the blackbirds, the birds we call blackbirds, they tend to make these chipping sounds, especially when they fly. And that was really handy. Okay, so I'll go outside and I'll listen for these uh, chipping sounds and maybe it'd be one of these blackbirds. Okay, so he'd listen for, like, the chip-chip songs, and then he'd narrow it down to what Blackbird it was. Exactly. That is Tumble Science Podcast with Marshall Escamilla and Lindsay Patterson talking with Trevor Attenberg, who taught himself these sonic cues from different types of birds. And the podcast is fascinating because he's kind of, like, mentally chronicled different categories of birds into their specific type of bird sounds, which is something I hadn't really ever thought about, like, Certain types of blackbirds have a very specific type of, of cadence and rhythm and melody. It's all musical. And for somebody who's visually impaired, that I'm assuming you who talked to him, it opened up his world. Yeah, it absolutely did because he was always, he told me he was always into nature, but always feared that he was missing out on everything because he couldn't see. So he had this drive to become an expert. And being able to recognize bird sounds, he had a, you know, massive CD of 500 bird sounds and actually started through Microsoft and Carta. That's what I found really interesting. It was fun for you to explain to the kids listening to the podcast (laughs) what a CD-ROM is. (laughs) CD-ROM used to be that songs had to be on plastic. (laughs) Yeah, but like being able to identify the birds within the um, recorded audio, then being able to go outside and recognize something that nobody else around him was picking up and know things that sighted people couldn't see, like really empowered him to keep learning and then transfer those skills into becoming a scientist and doing research and collecting data. And in fact, one of the interesting things we learn is that Birding is really auditory. You know, when you look up 
at a tree, like it's really hard to find what is that thing that's chirping. But if you can recognize the bird that's making it without seeing it, you know, you can be a really fantastic birder. And I think that birding is often really focused on the visuals and the birdie colors and the feathers. But Trevor's story shows that really anyone can bird and it can be accessible to everyone. That is really cool. Yeah. And what I thought was really interesting about him is he kind of started with what seems like a manageable goal, which he was going to learn the bird songs of each of the the birds, official state birds of the 50 United States. That like learning 50 bird sounds sounds like, okay, I think maybe that would be achievable. And then it just expanded from there to the point where he's a scientist now, right? (laughs) Or suddenly he knows them all. Or or so many of them. Um, We're speaking with Marshall Escamilla and Lindsay Patterson from the Tumble Science Podcast. Um, There is a, a foundation grant that got this podcast off the ground specifically for people who are, are blind or visually impaired. And we were kind of having fun at the beginning of the show saying, you're listening to this on the radio, you do a podcast, that the whole thing that we're doing doesn't matter if you're able to see or not. We work in these audio-only mediums. But tell us about how this particular podcast came about and you got in touch with Trevor um, with this grant. Yeah, this episode is part of a series we're doing across three seasons. Actually, Tumble's been around for eight years now, um, but we are focusing on blind scientists and the different ways in which they participate in science. And, and specifically, we're, we're sort of looking at how um, how podcasts about blind and visually impaired scientists might impact how both blind and sighted kids uh, see, you know, the, the possibilities for blind and visually impaired learners in the realm of science. Yeah. So we're going to kind of go through and test these in classrooms and also test how um, teaching kids to make podcasts based on these episodes we're producing can impact their overall sense of themselves as future you know, citizens or scientists or engineers or whatever. Well, coming up, we'll take a little break here and we'll talk more with Lindsay Patterson and Marshall Escamilla from the Greenfield-based Tumble Science Podcast for Kids. We might hear about how big the universe is, but we definitely want to hear about the event that's happening for free in their town of Greenfield this Saturday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on New England Public Media. Really? Yeah. <laughs> They're talking about the sounds of birds. You're going to use surfing bird? Oh, bird my goodness. Is a word. These are the jokes that get made on our show. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. <laughs> we are here with the hosts of the Tumble Science Podcast for kids, Lindsay Patterson and Marshall Escamilla. You're going to be at Meltdown in Greenfield this Saturday, which is a really cool free-for-all <laughs> kids event that's put on by several people we are acquainted with. This is your second time at Meltdown, correct? Yes. Yes. Awesome. What are you doing that's different this time from the last time you were there? Last time I got a lunchbox. What are you bringing this time? (laughs) Oh, man. This time we have notebooks. Uh, We have colored pencils. We We have have coloring coloring pages. pages. Yes. I'm not in it just for the swag. I, I mean, it was. I mean, you really, can have really some cool. swag. Well, we, thank you. We brought we some swag it. with us. <laughs> I'm also in it for the pop quizzes and the thing, the the 
useful information about uh, poop and snot. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> that's science, everybody. <laughs> we, we will still be singing the, uh, our, our greatest musical hit, which is the Sometimes But yeah. song. <laughs> I didn't get the Sometimes But song queued up for our segment here today. I should have. Oh, what a shame. Oh, we weren't talking specifically about bird butts, so. Yeah. Cloaca? Cloaca. 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 Yeah, I never know how to say that one out loud. But yes, that's a bird butt, everyone. That's a bird butt. It's also a bird, well. Yes, it's a bird everything. It's a multi-purpose. They just have one orifice. (laughs) No, they've got their mouth, too. Yes. Yeah, they got a mouth and then that. We've also created a dance for sometimes, but so we're trying to take it up right on to the yeah. next level. God, now I really wish I had it queued up because then you could teach us the dance. <laughs> yeah. Which is great radio. Right. Great radio. Yeah. But that is something that you will be teaching at Meltdown this Saturday uh, Saturday we, in Greenfield at Hawks. We Ray. will be doing that. We'll also be doing uh, the line dance of life um, where we teach everybody about DNA by doing a silly dance. Wow. Do you put people into a double helix? Oh, that's we got to add that now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need a lot of kids yes. for that. Yeah. Um, this is the perfect opportunity. You'll have a giant audience. Yeah. If like 1.4 billion kids show up, I think we could do <laughs> one strand of real... DNA. Yeah. You have every kid that's got a C, a T, a G, or an A name. Yeah. They all come up and hold hands. Exactly. It's the Human Genome Dance Project. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. You're sickle cell anemia. Dang <laughs> <laughs> it. Oh, no, kids! <laughs> That's the kind of fun you can have with Tumble Science Podcast this Saturday, April 22nd, from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., rain or shine, right outside of Hawks and Reed on Court Square in downtown Greenfield. You are recent-ish transplants to Greenfield. What brought you uh, to our wonderful, fabulous 413? Um, I think Lindsay's fond memories about going to camp out in Western Mass as a child. And my willingness to go along with it. Yeah. <laughs> any, any regrets other than the loud trucks going by your house? None. Absolutely none. <laughs> and uh, for those who, I mean, both Kalise and I came from WRSI, 93.9 The River, and this is their radio station event. I proudly helped create this event a decade plus ago. And it's the first time it's happening in Franklin County. So it's really cool that it's going to be uh, very close to where where you make your home now, uh, right on Court Square in downtown Greenfield. Yes. But once again, yeah. it's open to everybody. You can, yeah, it's anyone yeah. Can go. free and open to everybody. You and don't have to live in Greenfield to go. No, but and you do have to visit helps. Greenfield to go. <laughs> yes. And I also want to add a shout out to Bill Childs, who does Spare the Rock, Spoil the Child, who was one of the original supporters of our podcast, we had a segment on a show and when we were living in Austin and then he said, you should be a part of this event. Yeah. So we were the first podcast. First and only. part of and, Meltdown. And still, uh, yeah, last year was the first time a podcast was involved and it was you and you're a podcast involved this time too. And there's all sorts of other fun music and events that will be part of it. There's circus, there's food and ice cream and all that. One of your most recent episodes on the Tumble Science Podcast was about how big the universe is. Can you tell us a little bit, how big is the universe? Big. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's it. Thanks for coming. (laughs) If you imagine an elephant, it's bigger than that. Ah. Okay. Good. Tell tell us about the the theme of that episode and, and its star besides you two. Yes. So the episode is about Henrietta Leavitt, who is one of the first computers, I'm doing air quotes, because she was hired to take down data from these photographic plates, like early photographs of the stars, 
and basically do everything that a computer now does automatically, but by hand. Yeah, she was a human spreadsheet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she started noticing patterns in the data between these things called variable stars, which are stars that where the brightness changes over a cycle of time. Yeah, and it turned out to be a really key piece of the puzzle of being able to figure out distance. Because, um, you know, when you're looking at a star, you need to know both how bright it appears from Earth and how bright it actually is in order to figure out the distance. So they used her formula to figure out all sorts of distances to all sorts of stars. And it wound up really confusing people because it turned out that things were a lot bigger than anyone thought. <laughs> yeah, at the time, it's really fascinating. People thought that the Milky Way was pretty much all there was to the universe. And, and then they were like Snickers, yeah. <laughs> Mars bars. Those hundred been grand. invented yet. Yeah, okay. This Cadbury is cream eggs. Cadbury cream eggs. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, but it was just like an issue that like people's minds were blown by the idea that it could be bigger than that. And they were just like, no way. <laughs> and you talk about in the podcast that she was almost uh, erased out of her important role in finding this extremely pivotal piece of science out. Yeah, um, Edwin Hubble came along, who was a giant self-promoter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Named a telescope after himself. Yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't really. Obviously no, they named it after him. No. <laughs> we, we know Hubble's name, but uh, Henrietta Leavitt just got, like, they re- renamed the relationship that she discovered just recently within the past 10 years after her. So... It's been like a process of sort of reevaluating, you know, the roles of different astronomers throughout history. And so she's getting her due and her credit now. But she really created what they call like the first measuring stick that we could actually tell how far stars are from Earth. And before, people simply had no idea. So it really laid the foundation for modern astronomy and everything really changed after that. And now we know the universe is expanding, so <laughs> it's very hard to get, like, a full measure because it's changing. That's just the kind of stuff that you can learn about from the Tumble Science Podcast. It comes out twice a month, once a month? Every two yeah, weeks. Every, every two, two weeks. weeks. Okay. And uh, it's super fun. It's, you know, you, I listened to two on my commute down here today. So they're also fun, 20-ish minute long podcasts. They're Bite-sized. Bite-sized, yeah. lots of fun talk about butts and poop yep. and things that we brought before, but also you know, really important things about like making sure that people get the credit that they deserve <laughs> for creating these incredible formulas. And, uh, and you can meet Marshall and Lindsay in person this Saturday as part of Meltdown, the Rivers Free Family Music and Book Bash. I'm just so used to saying that. <laughs> I've been here for 10 years, just like that, from 10 to 3. Uh, at Hawks and Reed outside, uh, outside Hawks and Reed, and then at, on the Common as well um, at Court Square in downtown Greenfield. Yeah. Well, thank you both for coming in here today, making the trip from Springfield to Greenfield, and I will see you at least uh, on Saturday at Meltdown. Later in the show, have you ever been stranded on an airport runway and feel like you could run faster than the plane is taxiing? Well, you're in luck. You can run down a runway in Northampton this weekend, and we'll talk with the folks from the first ever Runway 5K. But up next, the word nerd and words that look backwards in time. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. And the Sometimes Butt song.
Dingle. You said dingle. To the yes. dingle. Yeah. What is that? What does a, that mean? It's a park. Like, I thought it was. A, I thought it was like an idiom. Oh, it's been growing wild to the dingle. Oh no! <laughs> You're gonna add it to the dictionary. <laughs> oh yeah, that's all it takes. Oh, to the dingle. To the dingle. Yeah, I didn't know that parks were called dingles until moving back to Western Mass. Wait, wait, wait. Mary's Dingle in Northampton. And I'm like, what? Yeah, that park on Crescent Street. I'm like, that's a dingle? That's not what I think of when I think of dingles. Then I went to the neighborhood meet, the neighborhood like association meeting who are super, super cute. And like, they all noticed that I was a new face. So they were like, so which, how's it, where do you live? Oh, that really cute, that cute cottage that abuts the dingle. And I'm like, what? (laughs) See how well-behaved I'm being in this conversation between you two? <laughs> we define Dingle as a small wooded valley, a dell. Oh, like the singer? Like farmer in the... Hello. Oh. No. And not Del. this computer that has been giving me hell for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Which is actually the homonym joke I was going to make to you because somebody had a thread going and one of the lines was, Adele isn't even a computer. Monty just gave me the look that I usually gave him. I feel oh, like I've wow. won today. Yeah, yeah, you totally you win did. the day. <laughs> Hello. Dude, you're getting it down. Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary down the street in Springfield. People love nostalgia, especially when it comes to words and all things retro. That's why we're going to talk about retro words, retro nims. Or am I completely wrong? Uh, yes, I mean, you're, yeah, no, no, you're not wrong at all. Retronyms, it's a category of word, right? A retronym is a, it's usually a compound term that is created to name an older or an original version of something. So, so this isn't, this instance, isn't like old timey words like dingle that we would use. Then, or and penny just, farthing. Yeah, just for fun, because it's retro, like a 1950s style diner in 2023. This is an actual type of word construction. That's right. And it's a word that actually names something that is kind of retro uh-huh. or that is maybe on its way to becoming retro. So, you know, a classic example is acoustic guitar. There were for how long there were guitars. Guitars existed. Everybody just calls them guitars, except for all the other names that are used for instruments that are also basically guitars. But aside from that, (laughs) we had guitars and then electric guitars got invented. And then the thing that everybody had been referring to simply as guitar became an acoustic guitar. Which is weird because technically all guitars are acoustic if they make sound. Because acoustic, I believe, means something akin to of or pertaining to sound. But then now there's also silent guitars too. So we have to make a distinction. There's also air guitars. Guitars. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So retronyms are all about making distinctions where there didn't used to be a need for a distinction or where a need just hadn't been recognized before. And is one of the driving factors behind most retronyms technology and advancements therein? Yeah, it's, I would say that's a good, that's a safe generalization to make, but not always. One of my favorite retronyms is British English. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just had Patriots Day the other day, so we know, we know uh, why that has come about, I suppose. English started in Great Britain, in what is now called Great Britain, the, and that language is, is definitely English. But as English you know, ventured out across the seas and got established in all these other places, not just the United States, we had to have a way of referring to that, that first English. Does Merriam-Webster consider itself an American English dictionary? Does it make that distinction in the way it identifies? Like Oxford English Dictionary would be an English English dictionary or a British English dictionary, right? Yeah, we are. We, we do cover English as used in some other places when it has made significant, when a word has made significant inroads into American English. 
So the short answer to your question is yes. We are primarily an American English dictionary. We do cover vocabulary from other kinds of English also. The term retronym has solid NPR roots. It was actually coined by (laughs) Frank Mankiewicz who was a former president of National Public Radio. Yay. Was he a linguist? How did he use it? What was the context with which he coined this word? Well, he was a journalist and he just noticed these words and and came up with the term retronym. You know, it takes the takes that retro prefix which means going back and the onym means name in Greek or it comes from a Greek root meaning name. And so he just he put it together and it's a it's a perfectly good coinage and it does the job really well. But he used to keep a, a list of these retronyms for his own use and then somehow it got out that he had this list and that he had coined this term for these words and everybody said, "Oh, sure, that's a great word for them." And has, you know, we've been we've been talking about retronyms ever since. I have this picture in my head of him with his list and people discovering it and him just hunching over it going, no, no, my precious. <laughs> I hope he wasn't ashamed. There's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing shameful in coining a word like retronym. There, you know, there are definitely worse things you can do linguistically. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> But just being the president of National Public Radio doesn't mean you get a word in the dictionary. They, some people had to start using that word retronym probably in published and edited text, as you like to say, before Merriam-Webster would acknowledge it as a word in the dictionary. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. What are some of your other favorite retronyms, Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield? I, I really like food retronyms because they can be surprising. Oh. Like, you know, black tea is a retronym. So is whole milk. Uh, ah, yes, right. <laughs> Even when I was a kid, milk was milk. Now there's like almond milk and things that aren't milk milk, but whole yeah. milk in particular was all that there was until the 2% in skim milk phase. We were always 2%ers. I didn't realize there was a difference. <laughs> we were always whole late. milkers and then we got 2% and we went down to skim and now I'm I'm 100% whole milk all the time or skim raw is- milk. Skim tastes weird. Yeah, it tastes like water. <laughs> Even 1%, like my partner drinks 1% and it tastes weird to yeah. me. It's 2% or whole for, I can't go, you have to leave the fat in. Yeah. Are you a lactose intolerant home, Emily Brewster, or do you have a preferred milk percentage? We drink whole milk and we just call it red milk because the cap is always red. Right. Yep. yep. Another good food retronym is free range chicken. That one's a little bit sad. <laughs> that is sad. Oh. <laughs> oh, I suppose that applies to eggs also, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. And then there's regular coffee. Oh, yeah. Which means something different if you order it at a Dunkin' Donuts. If you order a oh, regular yes. coffee I've done at that. Dunkin' it's Donuts, a terrible mistake. it means you're going to get yeah. it with cream and sugar. And other coffee shops in Massachusetts and New England as well, a regular coffee has cream and sugar in it, as opposed to what you're talking about, which would be not decaf coffee, right? That's right. Yeah. When did yeah, this terrible turn of events happen? It's been as my entire life, actually. I think if like if my if you were to talk to my parents and my even my grandparents' generation, they want do you want your coffee regular? They would mean with cream and sugar. The I first never... time I, I that was very shocking and unpleasant for me. The first time I got a regular coffee at Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> and it had cream and sugar in it. Well, probably because I do not Dunkin want Donuts, the sugar. But... Yeah, oh, well, oh, we're allowed to disparage? Yeah. Okay, sure, yeah, no, I haven't. Even if they were a sponsor, I would still say, yeah. not a fan of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. <laughs> yeah. Um, America gets the runs on Dunkin'. Oh, wow. <laughs> but suffice it to say, if you, want, if you want coffee that has caffeine in it, do not order a decaf coffee, but also don't order a regular coffee at a drive-thru because you're going to get it with cream and sugar. I like my coffee with caffeine and just black. Thank you. Yeah. 
All right, black coffee also then would be a um, that that's yeah that, I guess that's a retronym also mm-hmm. right yeah black coffee you know sometimes instead of retronyms there's another linguistic tendency that people have and they will say the uh, the kind of our other option is to do something called reduplication so we might say like I just want to I just want a cup of coffee coffee ah. like don't give me decaf just I just want coffee coffee yeah, yeah. I like or that. I just want milk milk if I mean like the you know the the standard one the one that everybody knows this is the real one yes. which is an inaccurate way of thinking about it so that's kind of our other option but the retronym is more pointed more precise and it, and clearer it's just it, it's a it's a clearer way of communicating what exactly you're referring to as opposed to just coffee coffee which of course is black coffee yes or pizza pizza <laughs> which is little caesar's right don't get it pizza pizza <laughs> it's not very good this will be two national pizza chains that we've trashed this week <laughs> And nearly a third for the locals. Yeah, we just threw in Dunkin' Donuts to trash them. Oh, as well. yeah, yeah. The Were you in the department? I'm Matt Damon. No, yeah, mm. I love him. I love him. Mm. Love him. Uh, I mean, some him. of his work. He's got a really consistent career, I think. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time for a Dunkin' run. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sign up for all this. You <laughs> You don't have to do the trashing. Wait, where is okay. that? We. I mean, people at this point should understand that we have opinions. Here's one I really like. This season is still a, a, a bit of a, of a way off, but um, you know, as we see spring coming, there is hope of having corn on the cob. Corn on the cob is really a, a retronym. Like it's on the cob. That's just how it grows. Which is interesting though, because I think a, like a lot of times corn was used for meal. So then it was taken off the cob and it was still called corn. But then people deciding to eat it on the cob, they had to come up with this name for it because they had been so frequently taking it off the cob, which you would think that corn would be just corn on the cob. Mm-hmm. And then corn off the cob would be the name, but no. Yeah. In all of these cases, people are coining terms. It's usually an open compound, right? It's usually like two words put together with a little space in between. But we're we're coining these terms to find a way to make a distinction. And we don't want to lose, we don't want to stray too far. So you don't give it like a brand new word, right? You don't call it... I don't know, you know, like Cornifica or something, if it's on the cob, right? You have to call it something that makes sense, that is very, these retronyms just, they just develop really organically. That's just how they, organic farming, there's another one. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Although I can think of yeah. one, just look at, there's one staring at me right now. We have our phones, which are usually things that we keep in our pockets mm-hmm. at this point, but I'm looking at a landline. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No one would have ever yep. called that a landline in nope. 1987. No. They would have just called it a phone. Yes. Right. What are some of your other favorite retronyms there, Word Nerd? I like live music. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful how, like, there's a simplicity to them where they're so integrated now, like, this this distinction, and you don't even think about how we had to come up with new terminology. <laughs> Right, right. But for millennia, there was only live music. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no hopes of, <laughs> of hearing music that was not live. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I recently had to sign a, a document or, you know, now it used to be that if you had to sign a document and you weren't in the same room with the person, you would have to sign it and you would have to fax it to them. And now you can use... Um, You can do an electronic signature, but if they want you to actually sign it with ink, now it's called a a wet signature. (laughs) Whoa. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. Are you like wet sign something? (laughs) Yeah. That's a legal term. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) 
No, no. Yeah. Sometimes I do that when it's snowing outside. I don't think that that's a legally binding document, though. I was going to say. I don't think either yeah, of us have any idea what you're talking about. I know I, what I, he's I, talking I about. Okay. And we were, yeah, no. Oh. Yeah, you got it, didn't yeah. you? Oh, yeah. I do. Right. Look, yes. I didn't come up with the name wet signature. You did, Merriam Webster. <laughs> You sign your name? No, Miriam Webster did not come up with that. Oh, here's another one I like. Outdoor rock climbing. <laughs> that one feels very sad to me. <laughs> A lot of these feel really sad that, to me. For, I don't even care about rock climbing, but that one in particular seems really sad to me for some reason. I don't know why. That you would have to differentiate that. I have no, I have no problem with an indoor rock climbing gym, but the fact that we have to clarify it in that way means that the indoor rock climbing gym is winning right now than the uh, as opposed to the actual I don't know outdoors. if it really means that not um, everybody has access to outside in the same way that's true some people live in the plains and there's no rocks right right it's too flat. and also sometimes it's not suitable weather to do it and you want to like you know continue your developing your your rock climbing skills mm -hmm. exactly. or like me maybe you're afraid of being out climbing random rocks oh definitely it's more comforting to be climbing I'm, I'm fine rocks. climbing the rocks I'm it's the it's the repelling that gives me trouble getting I'm like a cat like getting up there is no problem and then I get up there and I have instant regrets and it's like okay well I live here now yeah it feels <laughs> better to do it in an indoor setting for sure in that regard so I guess we'll you win outdoor rock climbing all right here's another one that's a little bit sad you probably are gonna think it's sad natural light yeah oh yeah although in our new uh, offices on Hampton Street in Springfield, we have a lot more natural light in our in our office space. I can see the trains at Union Station as they're coming in and out. You can all the feel time. the trains at Union yeah. Station. You can hear them everywhere. <laughs> it makes up for the fact that my my lovely house does not get any light inside of it. Really, you mean the one right near the Dingle? <laughs> the one right near the Dingle. <laughs> up next. We chat with the folks who on this Sunday will turn an airport runway into a proper racetrack for humans, all to raise money for the Treehouse Foundation, who are re-envisioning foster care and community living in East Hampton. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. If you park in a driveway and drive in a parkway, can you run on a runway? Yes, but only this Sunday morning and only at the Northampton Airport where they're going to be closing it to airplanes and opening it for runners. The first annual Runway 5K sponsored by Treehouse Foundation of East Hampton will straighten and flatten the traditional five kilometer race. The first of its kind in Western Mass is already filled to capacity with 270 entrants. But if you were so inclined, you could still support those entrants who are running to support the work of Treehouse Foundation. And joining us from Treehouse, not the brewery, let us say, <laughs> is uh, Julie Cumble, Director of Strategic Partnerships at the Treehouse Foundation. And joining us from the Northampton Airport is Holly Lurgio, Director of Marketing and Program at the Northampton Airport. I have so many airport-related questions. Like, are you programming, like, which planes go in and out of the airport? Is that what programming is? No, no, that is not, not what I'm That's not your thing. Yeah. yeah. We're working on, um, we offer positions for um, students to take flight lessons. Wow. We have, we offer scholarships to young ladies in, in who are interested in aviation. Um, we offer summer camps. 
Um, so that's the kind of programming that I work on. Wait, flight summer camps? Yeah. That sounds like the most fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. We did it for several years and then took a little break during COVID. Makes sense. And, um, yep, so this summer's our, our first one back. We're doing a, a STEM and aviation camp for 12 to 15-year-olds. Nice. Yeah. That's really cool. Team up with our friends at Tumble Science Podcast. Ooh. Maybe Seriously. they're yeah, talking to kids about STEM. Should. Yeah. Hey. yeah. And so, Julie, from Treehouse, uh, tell us what Treehouse is. I have a long, oh yeah, full disclosure, I have a long relationship with Treehouse and I've done a lot of uh, events with you. And I, I'm a huge admirer of the style of, of, of what you're doing in regards to foster care and how. It seems extremely innovative. For, but for those who aren't familiar with it, tell us what it's all about. Thanks, Monty. Um, so Treehouse Foundation, not brewery. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've tried to ask the Treehouse Brewery to make a beer to support the Treehouse yeah. Foundation. Thank so you. So I publicly say this again. Come Thank on, Treehouse Brewery. Come I mean, Treehouse at Treehouse is just easy easy right. to do, yeah. right? Well, whatever. It's a natural partner. We're not allowed to, kids. to campaign no. for this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we are a nonprofit, <laughs> Treehouse Foundation, um, and our whole mission is to ensure that children and youth who've experienced foster care are really surrounded and rooted in family and community um, so that they don't have any risk of aging out alone, which is unfortunately a really common trajectory for kids who've experienced foster care. And, um, you know, we support them in all sorts of ways through education, social, emotional leadership, those kinds of things. And then we also work on um, foster care innovation and really changing the foster care narrative. And that's on a broader national um, scope. And I can talk about both of those. But what we do in East Hampton with the Treehouse Foundation, as you know, because you've been there, Monty, and I hope you come out too, Kelly, is a... uh, intergenerational community. So it's this planned neighborhood that's been there since 2006. We have 120-ish community members who live there, 12 families who are in some process of adopting or have adopted kids from foster care. Um, And then 48 older adult cottages that are all sprinkled throughout so that everybody's really engaging in each other's lives. We call these older adults the honorary grandparents. Mm -hmm. They tutor, they Mm -hmm. mentor, they help in the garden, they help in the kitchen. Um, And then the families are there. And so the kids really are surrounded by um, caring, loving people and rooted in family. And, you know, the outcomes really speak to the power of community and intergenerational supports because the kids are not ever, ever returned to the foster care system. We have zero percent of that happening. What's um, the percentage? What's like the average percentage, though, so, so that people can see the yeah. difference in yeah. what happens? Yeah. Um, so it's it's I need to actually get that number from you. But I'll tell you one thing. You know, how how many kids can you say in, you know, general public schools have a 95 percent high school graduation or 95 to 100 percent college um, attendance or vocational? It's really, really atypical for the kids who've been in foster care to feel successful in their um, educational pursuits. They've had a lot of um traumas that make being in, you know, a new school, a new school, a new school, it, it leads to um, challenges, really, to succeed in education. And at Treehouse, that is not the story. So um, 
I should have that at the tip Don't of worry my about fingers. It. It's a lot, and it's <laughs> not at a treehouse. Exactly. It's like it's taken the whole concept of it takes a village to raise a child yeah. and just created a literal village yeah. in East Hampton yeah. at the foot of Mount Tom. It's this beautiful place with a gorgeous view of the mountain and this... Mm-hmm you know, great common areas and gazebo and things like yeah. that. And I really hope your music cafes come back at some point oh. because those were really wonderful. But how did you get the idea to run with airplanes? Or without airplanes, where without, airplanes usually I mean, run. there are airplanes still there. I'm assuming you're not moving the, all the airplanes away. They're going to be there. They're just not going to be active. And so maybe you have something you can catch while you're running. <laughs> yeah. That's my brain. The runway will be closed for a chunk of time in the morning. <clears throat> and our flight school airplanes will, will still be there. They'll be moved off to the side. But, yeah, there'll, there'll be some really cool airplanes to, to see that day. Um, lots on display. Lots for people to grab great photos. and um, World War II era planes and, and that um, tr- Snoopy and the Baron the kind of Baron. thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Are they coming just for this event to like show off their their cool planiness, or they're always there? They're always there. Oh wow! Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you got to come and visit. I they're, know. Yeah. And you brought these cool hats, and we're speaking with Holly Lurgio, uh, fr- who's from the Northampton Airport, and Julie Cumble from Treehouse Foundation, who are hosting this Runway 5K this Sunday to benefit the great work that you just heard about. All the runners are are full for this first ever event, but you can still support those runners. They have an eighty thousand dollar goal by going go to pledgeredge.com if you want slash runway 5k or you can check them out at the treehousefoundation.net you brought these hats that have planes on it and then the number is 7b2 b is not a number yes it is <laughs> it's the second number of the alphabet oh wow quick, quick. what does 7b2 mean besides you sunk my battleship so that is our airport identifier um all airports have one it's it's just the one that is associated with Northampton Airport. Is there a, a, a reasoning behind it or a logic that you understand? It's no. just like 413. Yeah. I don't know why it's right. called that. Right. Don't ask <laughs> me. I just live here. There might be a re- but, you know, you asked a good question. Like, how did we come up with this mm. idea? Because yeah. Holly and I are sitting here in your studio, and there's a whole team that's been working so hard on this event. Um, Chia Collins and Andrea Bacon were sitting together going, we really want to do a 5K benefit for Treehouse. Um, they've been super supportive of Treehouse, along with others' um, names that I, I'm not going to go through right now, but a really <laughs> fantastic team of people and business sponsors. And um, uh, their husbands got to, were in this conversation, and Andrea and Bob Bacon are owners of the airport. And I think it was Bob who said, let's just do it down the runway. Let's just clear the runway and have folks uh, run or walk down the runway, and then the course loops around. So the runway itself isn't 5K, but part of it is. So that generosity and that you know spirit has just been permeating throughout this whole planning process. Is this a unique event in the world, or is this something that other airports do elsewhere? Other airports do it, but no one's going to do it like we're doing it. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. Um, it is Northampton, after all. Yes, that's right. That's You're right. the first airport I've heard about doing it. Okay, good. So, that's so there's good. that. And I'm assuming that it would need to be, like, smaller, like, community airports, too, that do it because larger ones, like, clearing all of that space would be just difficult. And then TSA issues and, <laughs> like, possible security risks. But, like, let's just... 
talk a little bit about how like smaller community airports are really important, especially in like things like this where they get to you know clear off the runway so that we can run a fundraiser for other community organizations like that sort of connectedness. Yeah, yeah. The general aviation airports um, community is is very important. It's it's important within the community of the airport. You know the people who rent hangars there and. The, the flight students and the flight school, um, you know, that's all extremely important. There are, there are people who have hangars, most people who have their hangars that are set up, you know, with their airplane in there, but it's also like a little living room. They've got, they've got you know, couches and rocking chairs, and, and some will come and sit there and open their hangar door and, and just sit there all day and read or watch airplanes or you know, or play music. Yeah, play music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's oh, there nice. are some that have little bands and, um, but that community piece is really important. And and everyone at the airport has been like all in um, behind this particular um, event. Um, you know, we we hold other events, but this is this is a biggie for us, and um, it just kind of fits with with our mission and our values at the airport um, with with Treehouse. I can only imagine that some of the kids are definitely going to want to go and hang out at the airport after this event if they don't already. <laughs> yeah, you oh. have some future pilots on yeah. your hands. That are coming, we so. do, and we have you know we have a kids table um, with fun activities A to Z. The the kids store in Northampton donated these kites for kids to get oh, kids wow. who have registered. Yeah, so it really is like Holly said, um, you know, a, a community event, and I remember. Gosh, years ago, my brother-in-law and his wife and their two adopted boys from foster care flew from Oregon to this airport all the way, you know, stopping in a small mm-hmm. airplane all right. the way across the country. So it's, it's kind of a nice full circle with foster care, the airport, kids. It's all coming home. <laughs> We're speaking with Julie Cumble, the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Treehouse Foundation, and Holly Lurgio, the Director of Marketing and Programming at the Northampton Airport. The first ever Runway 5K, uh, sponsored by the Treehouse Foundation, a benefit for Treehouse Foundation. They're trying to raise $80,000. All the runners are set, but you can go find out and support uh, those runners at pledgereg.com slash runway5k. As I mentioned, I'm really inspired by the the nature of the way Treehouse handles foster care and community living, Treehouse has inspired other organizations to do similar type community living spaces, right? Yeah, that is definitely true. We have, we we inspire, we teach, we educate um, how to replicate the Treehouse model, whether it's, f- whether the focus is foster care innovation, or maybe it's, you know, another uh, group. Um, I know one of our Groups that have come to us are interested in creating a community for kids with autism. Um, and so, yes, we have Treehouse-inspired tree communities that are on their way. And we are actually um, replicating our own Treehouse model in Boston. So we have shovels going into the ground in 2024. Um, and then families and um, folks are going to start moving in in 2026. So it's mm-hmm. super exciting for us. Is it going to be similar size to the one in East Hampton? There's 200-something yeah. you said in? Oh, 120, 120 in East 120 in East Hampton, okay. Yeah, it's similar size. One of the things we're doing differently, though, is um, having housing for young adults who would otherwise age out. Because when you turn 18, the foster care system... It's like, you're done, you're an adult. You're an adult now, you're on your own. Yeah. And this is where 
organizations like Treehouse Foundation and other great organizations, even here in Western Mass, are trying to support them beyond that. Because as most people know, when you're 18, you are barely, you're legally an adult and that's it. That's one of those beautiful bridging things because like in so many aspects of many people's lives, like you reach this ledge and then all of a sudden there is just no support for you. So it's wonderful to see those bridges being built within communities to keep people more stable so that they in turn can come to build more community for other folks later. Just paying it forward in a way. (laughs) Holly, from from the airport, in about the last minute we have, do you get to fly as somebody who works at the airport to all places that we all have to drive to? Like, could you fly from Northampton? Do I get to envy you because I wear glasses and I can't learn? (laughs) No, you can. We're asking you so many questions. You can learn. (laughs) Um, most of our pilots fly sort of locally, um, but there are a lot of trips that, you know, in the summer and, a, a, well, not even summer, just on a beautiful day, people will, you know, go to Nantucket to get a, a good burger or, you know. How long does it take to go from Northampton to Nantucket by plane? It's like 45 minutes. Come on. Oh, man. Also, <laughs> has yeah. anyone at the Northampton airport gotten one of those kits where you build the the plane yourself. Yes. Oh, cool. Yes. And actually one of those airplanes is going to be on display. Really? Um, we yeah. might need to go do a segment at the Northampton airport yes. and then also go to Nantucket and <laughs> <laughs> and then stop at Treehouse Brewery and ask them to Well, thank you so much, Holly Lurgio, the Director of Marketing and Programming at the Northampton airport and Julie Cumble, Director of Strategic Partnership at Treehouse Foundation, the first annual Runway 5K this Sunday. You can find out more by going to Treehouse Foundation or go to pledgereg.com slash runway5k. Thursday, tomorrow, is 420. And on the Fabulous 413, we'll talk about the business of cannabis and striving for equity in the industry with Peyton Schubrick from Six Bricks Cannabis in Springfield, a black female-owned pot shop. We'll have a preview of Shout Elevate Inspire, an evening of poetry, music, and theater supporting youth voices and social justice at Springfield Technical Community College this weekend. And McGoverning with McGovern, Congressman Jim McGovern got a question for the congressman. You can email it to us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Our director is Tony Three-Way Sandwich Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy, found the sometimes butt song chord and so quickly, our technical team is Bart. You should eat the spare muffin Rankin. Kara wishing she could find her rubber mallet foster and punk Dubay Rod Boy. Rude Boy. Musical Rude thanks boy. to Spouse, Happy Valley <laughs> Guitar Orchestra, The Beatles, Fred Eaglesmith, The Slip, Treefort, Adele. I'm Monty Belmont. I'm Khalees Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.